Section 37 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 11, Calvin and the Reformed Church by the Reverend A. M. Fairbairn. Part 1. The Reformation emerges as an inevitable result from the interaction and opposition of many and complex forces. The spirit of the time, even when intending to be its enemy, proved its friend. The Renaissance, which had raised the ancient classical world from its grave, was not in itself opposed to the Catholic Church, but in the reason it educated and the historical temper it formed, in the literature it recovered, in the languages it loved, in the imagination it cultivated, and the new sense of the beautiful it created, there were forces of subtle hostility to the system which had been built upon the ruins of classical antiquity. Erasmus used his wit to mock the vulgar scholasticism of Luther, but Erasmus more than any man made Protestantism necessary and the papacy impossible, especially to the grave and reverent peoples of the North. The navigators, who by finding new continents enlarged our notions both of the earth and man, seemed but to add fresh provinces to Rome, but, by moving the center of social and intellectual gravity from the shores of the Mediterranean to those of the Atlantic, they inflicted on her a fatal wound. Moreover, by the easy acquisition of the wealth which lower races had accumulated, there was begotten in the Latin peoples so fierce and intolerant and avarice that their highest ambitions appeared ignoble, in contrast with the magnanimity and the enterprise of the Teutonic nations that became Protestant. And just as the history of man's past lengthened and the earth around him broadened, and with it his horizon, so the nature beneath him and the heavens above began by telling him their secrets to throw over him their spell. With the new knowledge of nature came new hopes, which looked more to the energies that were creating the future than to the authorities that had fashioned the past. Faith in man as man, and not simply as king or noble, as pope or priest, was reborn, and he appeared as the maker of history and the doer of the deeds that distinguished time. The most famous of the humanists were either themselves poor or sons of poor men, though they might affect, especially in Italy, the courts of kings and the palaces of the great who had patronage as well as power in their hands. The most eminent of the explorers was a Genoese sailor, the best-known conqueror was an officer's bastard, the author of the new astronomy was a clerk who never became a priest. The foremost scholar of the day was a child born out of wedlock, the most acute political thinker was a plain Florentine citizen, and the most potent English statesman was the son of a rustic tradesman. And this strenuous individualism found its counterpart in religion. The rights of man in religion were declared. The individual asserted his competence to know and to obey the truth by which he was to be judged. But the Reformation, at least in its earlier phase, bore also upon its face the image of the man whose genius gave it actual being. Luther had become a reformer rather by necessity of nature than by choice of will. His peasant descent may have given him a conservative obstinacy, 
which was concentrated and intensified by his narrow scholastic education. No man ever clung with more tender intensity to the customs and beliefs that could be saved from the wreckage of the past, but he did his work as a reformer the more thoroughly because he did it from nature rather than from choice. It is doubtful if in the whole of history any man ever showed more of the insight that changes audacity into courage. By the publication of his theses, he proclaimed a doctrine of grace that broke up the system which Europe had for centuries believed and obeyed. By burning the papal bull, he defied an authority which no person or people had been able to resist and yet live. By his address to the nobles of the German nation, he appealed from ecclesiastical passion and prejudice to secular honor and honesty. By his appearance and conduct at the Diet of Worms, he showed that he could act as he had spoken. By his translation of the Bible, he spread before the eyes of every religious man the law by which he was bound, and by his marriage he declared the sanctity of the home and the ties which attached man to woman. But, though Luther was by nature strong and heroic, he was yet so intellectually timid that he could not bear suspense of judgment, even where such suspense was an obvious duty. And so the system he created was alike in what it sacrificed and what it spared, a splendid example of dialectical adaptation to personal experience. He was, indeed, so typical a German that his church suited the German people, but for the same reason it could not live outside Teutonic institutions and the Teutonic mind. He had no constitutional tendency to skepticism, for his convictions did not so much follow or obey as underlie and guide the processes of his logic. Hence he was a man equally powerful in promoting and in resisting change. He stood up against forces that would have overwhelmed a weaker or a smaller man, but as a conservative, by nature he professed beliefs that a man of a more consistent intellect would have dismissed and cherished customs which a more radical reformer would have surrendered. And he was not conscious of any incompatibility among the things he retained, or of any coherence between what he gave up and what he spared. Thus he opposed to the authority of the Pope the authority of Holy Scriptures. But the Apostle who seemed to ignore or deny his most fundamental belief, he was ready to denounce as if he were the Pope. He appealed to the German people to uphold against Rome a gospel which declared all men to be equal before God, but when the peasants drew from his first principle an inference which justified their revolt, he sided with the princes. From his doctrine of justification by faith, he argued against the papal chair and its claims, but his theory of the Eucharistic sacrament was more full of mysteries that taxed the reason than any of the articles which he regarded as specifically popish. He held freedom to be the right of every Christian man, and confessed himself bound to accept every consequence which came by legitimate reasoning from the truth he acknowledged. But he refused the right hand of brotherhood to reformers whose love of freedom, integrity of character, purity of motive, and zeal in the faith were equal to his own. The longer the Protestant church lived, the more the reformer's inconsistencies and the inadequacy of his reformation became evident. 
and so a double result followed on the one side the ancient church pressed with growing severity upon the revolt and its leaders and on the other side the more eager of the rebellious spirits went forward in search of simpler yet more secure positions rome did not indeed understand at once what had happened but she understood enough to see how luther and the communities he had founded could best be dealt with an ancient church which has governed man for centuries instructed him organized and administered his worship consecrated him from his birth and comforted him in his death has always an enormous reserve of energy man is a being with an infinite capacity for reverence and it is where he most reveres that he is most conservative and least inclined to change and consequences soon followed from the reformation which threatened to limit its scope to the purification of catholicism to the restoration of its decayed energies and to furnishing it with the opportunity of vindicating by policy and argument by speech and action its name and its claims heresies soon arose in the protestant as they had arisen in the early church the collision of the new thought with the old associations provoked discussion discussion begat differences differences became acute antithesis which were hardened into permeance by the very means taken to soften or overcome them anabaptism supplied catholicism with fruitful illustrations of the dangers incident to freedom of thought the peasants war was made to point a moral which appealed to the jealousy of nobles and the ambitions of kings the rise of sectaries and the multiplication of sects were employed to set off the excellence of a uniform faith and infallible church the abolition of priesthood and hierarchy was used to unchurch the heretic and deny to his societies both divine authority and sacramental grace revival and reaction followed so fast on the heels of reform that had the lutheran church stood alone neither the eloquence of its founder nor the sagacity and steadfastness of the saxon electors nor the vigor of landgrave philip could have saved it but luther did not exhaust the tendencies that worked for reform they were impersonated also in zwingli as the one was by disposition and discipline a schoolman who loved the saints and the sacraments of the church the other was a humanist who appreciated the thinkers of antiquity and the reason in whose name they spoke luther never escaped from the feelings of the monk and the associations of the cloister but zwingli studied his new testament with a fine sense of the sanity of its thought the combined purity and practicability of its ideals and the majesty of its spirit and his ambition was to realize a religion after its model free from the traditions and superstitions of men it was this that made him so tolerant of luther and luther so intolerant of him the differences of opinion might have been transcended but the differences of character were insuperable the two men stood for distinct ideals and different realities and as they differed so did their peoples differences of political order geographical situation and climate could not but reappear in character and in belief as well as in the forms under which these were coordinated and expressed ecclesiastical order will ever reflect the civil polity prevailing in the region where it is evolved thus the roman church was built upon the ruins of the roman empire 
the Eastern Patriarchates were organized according to the methods and the offices of Byzantine rule, and the ecclesiastical institutions of the 16th century were shaped by the political capacities and usages of the peoples among whom and for whom they were created. Thus the church adapted to a German kingdom was not suited to the temper and ways of an ancient republic, nor was a system fitted to a despotic state congenial to the genius of a free people. Hence there emerged a twofold difference between the reformations accomplished by Luther and by Zwingli, one personal, which mainly affected the faith or creed of the church, another social or civil, which mainly affected its polity. Luther, a schoolman, while a reformer, created out of his learning and experience a faith suited to his personal needs. But Zwingli, a reformer, because a humanist, came to religion through the literature which embodied the mind of Christ and the Church of the Apostles. Hence the Lutheran Reformation is less radical and complete than the Zwinglian, while its faith is more traditional and less historical and rational. But the differences due to the political order and the civil usage were, if not deeper, yet more divisive. Luther effected his change under an empire and within a kingdom by the help of princes and nobles, but Zwingli effected his under a republic by the aid of citizens with whom he had to argue as with consciously freeborn men. Both might organize their respective churches by means of the civil power and independence on it, but the civil powers were not the same, the reigning forces being in the one case the law and the princely will, and in the other case the reason and the free choice of men, trained in self-government by the usages of centuries. The Lutheran Church was thus more monarchical, the Zwinglian more republican in constitution. The one was constructed by princes, the other organized by the genius, and built by the hands of a free people. The Reformation, then, could not possibly be expressed in a single homogeneous form. Organization was a necessity if the liberty achieved by the movement was to be preserved, but it is a much harder thing to establish an order agreeable to liberty than an order suitable to bondage. When a revolution once begins, authorities, personal or political, may retard or deflect it, but they cannot stop or turn it back, and no revolution leaves man exactly where it found him. The wheel may accomplish its full round, but it never returns to the point whence it started. If then, man could not go back but must preserve what he had gained he needed a system that would serve his new mind as catholicism had served his old out of luther's reformation came the church which bears his name out of zwingli's the church which is specially termed the reformed this church was born in switzerland but named in france and the name signified that while it was a church protestant and evangelical like the lutheran it was yet ancient and continuous like the Roman, able to change its form or accidents without losing its essence. Being Swiss by birth, it was republican in polity and democratic in spirit, a church freely chosen by a free people and capable of living amid free institutions. But France, in adopting and naming it, made it less national and more cosmopolitan, helping it to realize a character at once more comprehensive and aggressive. Now, 
the causes of this action may be described as at once general and particular or national and personal of the more general or national causes three may here be specified french protestantism was more a lay than a clerical revolt the men who led and who formed it were without the mental habits or the associations of the priest at first indeed it was termed just as if it had been imported from germany the lutheran heresy but the most notable of the early french martyrs louis de bequin was a pupil of erasmus rather than of luther the men who made the psalms with the french protestants loved to sing were not of the priestly order while their two most illustrious teachers were both jurists and scholars it was then but characteristic that the reformed church of france should more emphasize moral character and temper than custom or formulated beliefs and that john calvin who was its most creative personality should not think like a schoolman or appeal to the imitatio christi as luther had appealed to the theologica germanica its genius was to sacrifice everything which scripture did not directly sanction and justify while the genius of the lutheran church was to spare everything that scripture did not expressly forbid and these differences were felt and resented by the lutherans long before they were perceived or appreciated by the catholics for one of the most tragic things of history is the jealousy which made the lutherans so fear the reformed church that they would at one time rather have seen rome than geneva victorious again the reformed church in france had to live in the face of a persecution so severe and the legislation so repressive as to be without parallel in the annals of any civilized country certainly in the case of the early church the martyrdoms were numerically fewer while its sufferings were less continuous and its period of persecution not so unbroken and protracted the roman amphitheatre was compared with the place maubert a home of mild humanity the gay and careless intolerance of francis i had nothing to learn from pagan hate while the inquisition was a fiercer and more pitiless foe than heathenism could have bred the first martyrdoms took place in fifteen twenty three at Meaux and at paris by fifteen twenty six they had become common an eye-witness tells us that in six months fifteen thirty four to five in paris alone twenty-seven persons were burned to death and in fifteen sixty eight as if to show how the thirst for blood had grown two huguenot writers assure us that during the short peace in three months more than ten thousand people were slain a statement which the testimony of the venetian ambassador abundantly confirms in fifteen eighty one a book dedicated to henry three places the number who had fallen within the few preceding years for the religion at two hundred thousand and it goes on to enumerate the victims provided by the larger churches these figures may be exaggerated but the exaggerations which are those of contemporaries will seem extravagant only to those who have never looked into the records of congregations and classes in any case the figures witness to the fierceness of the fires that scorch the reformed church in france and explain if they do not justify its passion of religious hate while they drew to it the pity and awakened for it the admiration of all its sister and daughter communities 
to define policy and shape character in their own and other lands for their own and later ages has ever been the prerogative of the persecuted. And this prerogative the Huguenot has exercised as a splendid revenge. He had no opportunity of becoming a loyal citizen. The state would not allow him. L'Hôpital laid down the principle that there could be no civil unity where there was religious dissension, and that the city which allowed its citizens to disagree in their theological beliefs could know no peace. While he urged the sectaries to cultivate charity and cease to use the mot diabolique, which they flung at each other, and to employ instead the truest and most characteristic of names, Christian, yet his thought translated into law rendered, so far as the Huguenot was concerned, duty to the state and duty to conscience incompatible. And the tragic struggle in which the Huguenot was engaged made him a heroic and a potent figure. What the French Revolution did later for the European peoples, the Huguenot did for Protestantism. He made his faith illustrious, his example became infectious, and the churches of other lands loved to emulate the Reformed Church of France. And this effect was at once intensified and heightened by the expulsive power of the anti-Protestant legislation. It drove men out of France without expelling their love of France. They only loved her the more that she had made them fugitives for conscience' sake. Men like John Calvin and Theodore Beza did not cease to be sons of France, though they became citizens of Geneva, and they used their foreign citizenship to serve their motherland more effectually than they could have done in any of her own cities. The Protestants failed in France, yet it is doubtful whether, without their failure there, the Reformed Church could have prospered. The events that so tended to define its creed and demeanor helped it to fight its battles the more bravely. Finally, the Reformed Church, as organized by the French mind, belongs essentially to the second Protestant generation, and its distinctive note was an enlarged historical knowledge and a clarified historical sense. The feeling for religion was in the second generation not less strong than in the first, but it knew better the problem to be solved, and had become more conscious of the many and complex factors required for its solution. The new literature had almost nothing to do with determining the minds and motives of the earlier reformers, but determined almost exclusively those of the latter. With the exception of Melanchthon, no Lutheran of the front rank came from the humanists, but all the creative minds of the Reformed Church were children of the Renaissance. The problem, as they saw it, was historical and literary, as well as religious. The Old Testament, which Rucklin had recovered, and the New Testament, which Erasmus had published and interpreted, enabled them to study both the religion which Christ had found and the religion which he had made. The apostolic writings showed how the men who knew him or who knew those who knew him, understood and tried to realize his mind. Their own experience had set them face to face with the church and system which claimed to express the mind of the apostles and to represent the apostolical society. They were not curious and scientific inquirers 
who wished to discover how the one had become the other or how the twin laws of continuity and change had fulfilled themselves in history they were convinced and sincere religious men who studied first the scriptures to find the idea of christ and then their own times to see whether it had been and how it could be realized there was thus an objectivity in the reformed ideal which was absent from the lutheran a greater thoroughness a more comprehensive spirit a more conscious and coherent endeavor to repeat and reflect the apostolic age the reformed church was not built to meet the exigencies of an expanding personal experience but articulated throughout according to a consciously conceived idea it bore indeed even more than the lutheran the impress of a single mind and then that mind was as typical of france and the second protestant generation as luther was typical of germany and the first and it had come by a very different process and way to the convictions which drove it into action calvin like zwingli was a humanist before he became a reformer and what he was at first he never ceased to be on the intellectual side as a scholar and thinker his affinities were with erasmus though on the religious side they were rather with luther indeed calvin can hardly be better described than by saying that his mind was the mind of erasmus though his faith and conscience were those of luther he had the clear reason and the open vision of the one but the religious fire and moral passion of the other the conscience made the intellect constructive the intellect made the conscience imperious at once individual architectonic and collective in calvin the historical sense of the humanist and the spiritual passion of the reformer are united he knows the sacred literature which his reason has analyzed while his imagination has seen the apostolic church as an ideal which his conscience feels bound to realize there was rigorous logic in all he did dialectic governed him from the humanism which furnished his premises to the religion which built up his conclusions this is the man whom we must learn to know if we would understand the reformed church what it did and what it became in his hands the personal cause then which most of all contributed to the creation of the reformed church as history knows it is john calvin in him we must here attempt to understand from two points of view first that of descent and education secondly that of place and sphere in which he did his work calvin was born on july tenth fifteen o nine at noyon in picardy it was the year when king henry the eighth when Calais was meditating the reformation of a school which was to bear the name of the apostle whom he loved when erasmus learned and famous was in rome holding high argument with the cardinal de medici when luther attained the dignity of sententiarius and had been called to wittenberg and when melanchthon though only a boy of thirteen matriculated at heidelberg calvin's ancestors had been bargemen on the ois but his father gerard calvin had forsaken the ancestral craft and had some time before fourteen eighty one migrated from pont l'eveque to noyon where he had prospered and had in due course become notaire apostolique procureur fiscal de compte scribe 
en chœur d'église, secrétaire de la vache et promoteur de chapitre. He married Jean Lefranc, the daughter of a well-to-do and retired innkeeper, described by a Catholic historian as a most beautiful woman, and by a local tradition as remarkably devout. Beza says that the family was honorable and of moderate means, and he adds that the father was a man of good understanding and counsel, and therefore much in request among the neighboring nobility. To this, couple were born, four sons, two daughters, John being the second son. The father, who intended the boy for the church, had the successful man's belief in a liberal education, and obtained for him, just as the modern father seeks a scholarship or exhibition, first the revenues of a chapel in the cathedral, and some years later those of a neighboring curacy. Among the local gentry was the distinguished family of Montmeur. One of them, Charles de Hengast, was from 1501 to 1525 Bishop of Noyon, and his nephew Jean held the same episcopate from the succeeding 52 years. This Jean quarreled lustily with the chapter, which disliked his manners, his dress, his beard, and possibly also the tolerance of heresy, which made him suspect dans sa foi et odieux à l'église et l'état. It is probable that his friendship with this episcopal race helped Gerard to rise and also hasten his fall. Whatever the cause, whether financial embarrassments, personal attachments, dubious orthodoxy, or all three combined, his later years were more troubled than his earlier, and he died in 1531 under ban of the church. There is no evidence of any latent Protestantism, either in him or in his family at this time, though four years later John had become the hope of the stern and unbending reformers, and within five years the eldest son Charles had died as un âme damnée, for he refused on his deathbed to receive the sacraments of the church. Calvin's education began in the bosom of the Montmore family, not indeed as a matter of charity, but, as Beza tells us, as the charges of his father, and though Calvin never forgot that he was unu de plebe humonicio, yet he was always grateful for the early associations which gave to his mind and bearing a characteristic distinction. In 1523 he was sent to Paris, where he entered as a student of arts the College de la Marche, whence he passed for his later and more special studies to the College de Montaigu. The University of Paris was old and famous, but its then state was not equal to its age or its fame. Erasmus describes how the students were mobbed and hunted on the streets, the sort of houses no better than Lupinaria, which they frequented or lodged in, the filthy language they heard or used, the still filthier deeds they were expected to do or suffer. Rabelais, Panurge, came to Paris skilled in a host of tongues, but Malfaisant, Pépure, Beauvieux, Batteur, de Pavé, Rebleu, averse to no form of mischief or pruency. James Drydander, brother of Francis, one of Calvin's innumerable correspondents, describes the preceptor Cooley and the magistelli of the university as amazing the students by the impudence and ineptitude with which they explained authors whom they did not understand. 
and how did the boy of fourteen conduct himself in this, to him, strange atmosphere? We need not trust the admiring or depreciative narratives of later men, but we may judge the lad by the friends he made. Foremost among these stands the four cops. The father, Guliame Cop, the king's physician, correspondent of Roclin, and friend of Erasmus, who praised him as of medicine the Vindex et Antistes, and as Mozarium Culture, and the sons Jean, who became a canon of the church, Nicholas, who in 1530 became a professor of philosophy, and in 1533 delivered as rector of the university an address which made both him and Calvin famous, and the youngest of the brothers, Michel, who followed Calvin to Geneva and became a Protestant pastor. Besides the cops, there stands another Erasmian, Guilami Bude, of whom Calvin in his earliest work spoke as Primum Re, Literare, Decus e Colomen, Quiris Beneficio, Palmum, Eruditionis, Hodi, Sibi, Vindicat, Nostra Gallia. One of the regents of the College de la Marche was Mathurin Cordier, an enthusiastic teacher who loved learning and learners, and whose keen eye saw the rich promise hidden in his new scholar. The relations of master and pupil were almost ideal. Calvin never ceased to regard Cordier with affection, dedicating to him in profound but reserved gratitude one of his commentaries. Cordier ever respected Calvin and showed his respect by becoming, like him, Protestant, and following him to Geneva, where he died, though thirty-two years Calvin Sr. in the same year as his condemned pupil. And here, perhaps, we may most fitly glance at the commonest of all the charges brought against Calvin. He is said to have been, even then, austere, severe, harsh, intolerant, inaccessible to the softer emotions, well entitled to bear the name which the playful companions of his youth gave him, the accusative. But how stands the facts? There is no scholar of his time more distinguished by his willingness to serve friends, or his power to attach and bind them to himself by bands of steel. Of the de Montmers, with whom he was educated, almost all, in spite of high ecclesiastical connections and hopes, became Protestants, while to his old fellow pupil, Claude, he dedicated the first fruits of his literary genius. The Copse and Cordier have already been noticed, and, though Boudet did not himself cease to be a Catholic, yet his wife and family all became Protestants, five of them on his death in 1549, seeking refuge in Geneva. Another early teacher, whom Calvin deeply revered, expressing his reverence in one of his most characteristic dedications, was the Lutheran Melchior Wolmar, to whom he owed his introduction to the Greek language and literature. But if one would understand the young Calvin, one must study him as revealed in his letters to friends and companions like Francois Conan, whom he describes as the wisest and most learned of men, whom he trusts above all others, and whose advice he rejoices to follow, or Francois Daniel, whom Calvin salutes as a mis incomparabilis, 
or as Frater et Amis Integerame, or Nicholas de Chemin, whom he rallies on his literary ambitions and addresses as Mia Vider Scherrier. The man is here revealed as nature made him, and before he had to struggle against grim death for what was dearer to him than life, affectionate and delicate, not in body, but in spirit. In 1528, Calvin's father, perhaps illuminated by the disputes in his cathedral chapter, discovered that the law was a surer road to wealth and honor than the church, and decided that his son should leave theology for jurisprudence. The son, nothing loath, obeyed, and left Paris for Orléans, possibly as he descended the steps of the College de Montaigu, brushing shoulders with a Spanish freshman named Ignatius Loyola. In Orléans, Calvin studied law under Pierre de L'Estoile, who is described as Juris Consultorum Gallorum Facile Princeps, and as eclipsing in classical knowledge Roclin, Aleander, and Erasmus, in Greek under Wolmar, in whose house he met for the first time Theodore Beza, then a boy about ten years of age. After a year in Orléans, he went to Bourget, attracted by the fame of the Italian jurist Alciati, whose ungainliness of body and speech and vanity of mind his students loved to satirize, and even by occasional rebellion to chasten. In 1531, Gerard Calvin died, and his son, in 1532, published his first work, a commentary on Seneca's De Clementia. His purpose had been construed by the light of his later career, and some have seen in the book a veiled defense of the Huguenot martyrs, others a cryptic censure of Francis I, and yet others a prophetic disassociation of himself from Stoicism. But there is no mystery in the matter. The work is that of a scholar who has no special interest in either theology or the Bible. This may be statistically illustrated. Calvin cites 22 Greek authors and 55 Latin, the quotations being most abundant and from many books, but in his whole treatise there are only three biblical texts expressly cited, and those from the Vulgate. The man is cultivated and learned, writes elegant Latin, is a good judge of Latinity, criticizes, like any modern, the mind and style, the knowledge and philosophy, the manner, the purpose, and the ethical ideas of Sinisa, but the passion for religion has not as yet penetrated as it did later into his very bones. Erasmus is in Calvin's eyes the ornament of letters, though his large edition of Seneca is not all it ought to have been, but even Erasmus could not at twenty-three have produced a work so finished in its scholarship, so real in its learning, or so wide in its outlook. What gives the book significance is the nature that shines through it. The humanist is a man with a passion for conduct, moral, voracious, strenuous, who has loved labor and bestowed it without grudging on the classical writer with whom he has most affinity. Of the twin pillars of Roman philosophy and eloquence, Cicero is for him an easy first, but Sinisa is a clear second. Calvin is here at once a jurist and a scholar, but amid his grammatical literacy and historical discussions, every phrase and idea interpreted 
being illustrated from classical authorities he speaks his mind with astounding courage concerning the qualities and faults of kings and judges states and societies he bids monarchs remember that their best guardians are not armies or treasuries but the fidelity of friends and the love of subjects arrogance may be natural in a prince but it does not therefore cease to be an evil a sovereign may ravage like a wild beast but his reign will be robbery and oppression and the robber is ever the enemy of man cruelty makes a king execrable and he will be loved only as he imitates the gentleness of god and so clemency is true humanity it is a heroic virtue hard to practice yet without it we cannot be men and he uses it to qualify the stoic ethics pity is not to him a disease of the soul it is a sign and condition of health no good man is without pity the athenians did well when they built an altar to this virtue cicero and even juvenal teach us that it is a vice not to be able to weep and the doctrine becomes in calvin's hands social man pitiful to men will be sensible of their rights and his own duties conscience is necessary for us but his good name is necessary to our neighbor and we must not so follow our conscience as to injure his good name we ought so to follow nature that others may see the reason in the nature that we follow he can be humorous and laughs at the ridiculous ceremonies which accompanied the apotheosis of caesar or at the soothsayers who prophesied without smiling but he is usually serious and grave criticizing Sinisa for speaking of fortune instead of god and the stoics for doctrines which make human nature good yet isolate the good man from mankind the ethics of the stoics he loved but not their metaphysics their moral individualism and their forensic morality he admired but the defects of their social and collective ideals he deplored and condemned the humanist is alive with moral and political enthusiasm but the reformer is not yet born end of section thirty seven read by david ronald